All right, welcome to Journey Church. We are starting off this new year. We started off last week, but we're continuing this in the new year, this uh, transformed series as we walk through the book of Acts. If you missed last week, as always, don't miss. You can go back online and you can catch that and get caught up. But we left off last week. We started in chapter one. We started, we spilled over into chapter two where, you know, on the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered together. And, and then all of a sudden, the, the Spirit of God came. There were, you know, the wind of God blew, the tongues of fire, the power of God, the promise of the Father, all of those things. They were speaking in tongues. Everyone's hearing in their own language this miracle, being able to hear this. It was quite fascinating, and surprises were in the air. That's kind of how we left it. Surprises were in the air. And so the apostles are there, and a lot of people are amazed, but some people have an issue with it, and we can see the response here as we continue in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, as you can imagine, if this was happening, because this was the first time that they had ever experienced anything like this. And so they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking. And they said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he lifted up his voice, and he addressed them, and he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, if you know what that means, he's like, these people are not drunk, it's only nine in the morning, that's what he's saying. I can just imagine him just making a joke out of this, and you can laugh at it too if you want to. So he's like, they're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. And he's like, that's not what's happening here. And he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, and here's what Joel said, and Joel was a prophet, he prophesied these things, he said, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And so various opinions about Joel and you know what his time frame, time frame of his ministry some people say it was like in the 800s BC some people say it was more around the time of the Babylonian exile nonetheless his message is pretty clear there's a judgment that's been involved in his time and he's also calling people to repentance and as he calls people to repentance he doesn't just leave them in a call to repentance he also offers them this hope that one day When the last days come, there will be a pouring out of my spirit on all flesh. And there will be an amazing outpouring of God. And so he says, and so Peter stands up and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. And so Peter is essentially saying, like a lot of people wonder, are we in the last days? Well, Peter thought he was in the last days. (laughs) He said, this is the, these are the last days. He's like, Joel said in the last days, this is what will happen, and this is what is happening. And so the question isn't, are we in the last days? The question is more, are are we in the last of the last days, right? Because the last days started on the day of Pentecost, according to the Apostle Peter. And so the, the question is, are we in the last of the last days? And we might just be. We might be in the last of the last days. But one of the marks of the last days And the prophecy being fulfilled is Peter said what happened on the day of Pentecost was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But if we are in the last days, and we certainly are, but if we're in the last of the last days, 
then there are some warnings that the scriptures tell us about, like warnings not to walk in darkness, warnings not to be lulled to sleep, warnings not to be intoxicated with the ways of the world. And so Peter says, these guys aren't intoxicated in a worldly way like you think. They have an influence of the Holy Spirit on them. Well, Paul writes later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake, and here it is, he's tying in these two things, and sober. Let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation." Have you guys ever fallen asleep at an inopportune time? Anybody ever done that before? As you get older, do you find yourself falling asleep at just random times, right? You just find, yeah, somebody's saying amen to that, right? We're hitting home, I guess. This is what he's warning. He's warning. He's like, let us not fall asleep. I, I, when, when I was dating my wife, I was involved in a love triangle. And uh, some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? Let me explain, please. Let me explain. <laughs> My love triangle was this. I lived in Cameron, Missouri, and I would drive to work down here in Kansas City. And then after work, I would drive where she lived in St. Joe. And then I would drive back late at night. This was my love triangle because it was love that was motivating me to do all of this. And so when, you, when I was in the love triangle, I found myself at random times being very exhausted because this was like, I mean, to work construction all day and then drive and all the, I mean, it was like a 45 minute drive in between all of this. And so one, one night we're, we're at her house and the Lord is my witness. This is what happens. So, okay, just, just so you know. So we're sitting there on her couch and we both just fell asleep watching Bugs Bunny cartoons. And I wake up and it's something like four in the morning. And I had, I mean, I'm still living at home. I had a curfew and all this type of stuff. And so I wake up, can you imagine? I wake up at like four in the morning and I'm like 45 minutes away from my house, right? And I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I start, I drive back, you know, and I'm praying, you know, I'm getting right with God and all that stuff on the way home, you know, just trying to, you know. And so as I pull in, my dad is just getting up for work as I pull in. Now, what's worse than that is, that is that my mom had stayed up all night waiting for me because we didn't have, I, didn't, I don't know if I had a cell phone or whatever. And, and so, I, I mean, if my mom was ever demon-possessed, that was the moment that I saw it in her eyes, and it was all directed towards me. And that was an inopportune time to fall asleep. Another time during my love triangle days, I was so exhausted. I was driving home one night trying to make curfew, but I was, have you ever been, uh, you know, so tired trying to drive, like, which is the worst thing to do. You should not do it. But I was, you know, young and naive, and I just thought, I just have to make my curfew. And so I'm driving home, and I'm like nodding off as I'm driving. And so I'm drinking caffeine. I've, it was cold outside. I have the, my sunroof open, my, my windows down. I'm yelling at the top of my lungs. I have the, the radio up as loud as it could possibly be. I'm doing everything I can to stay awake. And I'm still nodding off, which is horrible. Well, I wake up as just after I ran into a car in front of me on the highway, I don't even know how I stayed on the, the highway to do this. 
Well, and so then, I'm, you know, I'm just a teenager, and I'm like, well, I don't know what to do now. It's dark outside, and I just ran into somebody on the highway. And so I'm just going to wait and see if they pull over so we can exchange insurance or whatever you're supposed to do. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm following them, waiting for them to pull over. Can you imagine from their perspective? At night, someone rams their car and now is tailing them, right? And so the next thing I know, there are four police officers coming out, surrounding me on all sides with their lights going. They pull me over, and they think I'm like some crazy madman trying to assassinate them or something. And so I tell them the whole story, and they go and they talk to the people, and, and they're like, okay, well, you know, we believe you and all that type of stuff. And they said, the officer said, well, if they decide to, to you know, press any charges or whatever, we will uh, you know, knock on your door and give you something or whatever like that. And, and he said, if. And so I thought, there's a chance they might not. And so I have a choice to make. Do I tell my parents or not tell my parents, right? And I was a pretty good kid. I'm not, I'm not implying I was trying. But this was like one of the weightiest things that had ever, you know, happened at this point. I mean, four police officers chasing me and all that stuff. So I was like, so what do you think I did? I told them. Ten years later, <laughs> after the statute of limitations had lifted, that is not wise. That is not wise. Because the whole time I was under stress, just wondering if a police officer was going to show up at my door. It's not recommended. But you, you fall asleep. And I heard somebody say it this way, this way that um, you never know the exact moment when you fall asleep. Right? I mean, you kind of think you do. Sometimes you'll look at the clock and you'll think, yeah, it was around, you know, 11 o'clock or whatever. But you never know the exact moment you fall asleep because you're lulled to sleep. This is the warning for us as believers. Could it be possible that we're in the process of being lulled to sleep? And we don't know the exact moment when it happens. But there's a warning there for us, and the danger for us as believers is not to be lulled to sleep and to slowly drift off into the ways of the world, participating in the compromise of the world, participating in the sin of the world, participating in the anger and the tribalism of the world. We can be lulled to sleep, and this is the warning. And we get to decide each day that we are alive which spirit we are influenced by. Are we going to be influenced by the spirit of this age, or are we going to be influenced by the spirit of God? And every day that we wake up, we get to decide what spirit we're going to be influenced by. Now, here's why that's important. It's important because we bear the fruit of whatever spirit we are influenced by. If you're influenced by the spirit of this age, eventually you're going to bear the fruit of the spirit of this age. It's going to come out in your life. It's going to come out in your children. It's going to come out in your business. It's going to come out somewhere. We bear the fruit of whatever spirit we're influenced by. You also, I mean, so if, if it's the spirit of God, you are going to bear the fruit of the spirit of God. We call that the fruit of the spirit. Not only will you bear the fruit of it, but you will also bear the power of that spirit. So we bear the fruit, we bear the power of whatever spirit, if it's the spirit of the sage or the spirit of God that we are influenced by. Now, last week, we talked about this power. We talked about the influence. We, we, we're doing a deep dive into that. And I told you about this class that we're having, the School of the Spirit. 
and Pastor Lee Cummings, we're going to be doing a big class with, you know, his video and his book and all this type of stuff coming this Tuesday. And so we really just announced that in the, the real first way, uh, in a lot of ways, last weekend as I was preaching. Normally we'll have, you know, 20 or 30 people register for a class. I just checked today, we have 153 people registered for this Tuesday. So... That's amazing. That means you guys are hungry, right? And, and there's still time. If you want to in on this, you can still register. Let's just pack out the place. Let's just go after this. But, but as a part of this, I want to kind of whet your appetite a little bit more and with a couple clips from Pastor Lee who talks about what we're talking about today. So here's a clip from Pastor Lee. God wants to do so much more through me. And I want our faith level to just skyrocket in the day and age that we live in. So here's the four priorities that brought critical mass to the church. Number one, Jesus said this. Here's the priority. That they were to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. I want, he, Jesus said, I want you to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse four and five in Acts one, here it says. And while they were staying with them, or he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus knew that the same Holy Spirit power that fueled his ministry was required and necessary to fuel the mission of the church. And Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we can have a tendency to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the first four books of the Gospels that tell us everything about Jesus' life, and we, we can be tempted, or maybe it's our default setting, to think, well, of course Jesus healed the sick. Of course Jesus cast out demons. Of course Jesus was able to discern and answer supernaturally questions that were meant to be traps because, of course, Jesus did all that because Jesus was God. And because he's God, of course, he's gonna do those kinds of things. But I can't do those things because I'm not God. Well, you're right. You and I are not God, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing we're not God. It's, it's a good thing I'm not God because I would react a lot differently than my merciful, long-suffering, patient father does. So everybody just wipe your brow and go, I'm so glad Pastor Lee's not God. <laughs> but here's the reality, is that if we believe that Jesus did those things because he was God, then we're missing really the point, one of the major points of Jesus' life and ministry. You see, Acts 10.38 Writer Luke, we'll get to this chapter, looking back on the life of Jesus, it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were sick and oppressed by the devil. How did Jesus heal the sick? How did Jesus set people free who were oppressed by the devil? He did it because of the anointing of who? Of the Holy Spirit. When did that happen? Matthew chapter four, Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry goes to the Jordan River. John, his cousin, baptizes him. Not because Jesus needed 
to have his sins washed away, but because he was stepping into priestly ministry, this was a mikvah, this was a cleansing and a washing and a ceremonial purification before a priest began ministry. And when that happened, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. When he comes out of the wilderness, he goes to his hometown synagogue. He opens the scroll of Isaiah chapter 60, and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. How did Jesus do what he did? Did he do it because he's God? No, Jesus could have done it because he was God. But Philippians 2 says that Jesus actually set aside certain attributes that he had as God for a period of time in order to show us a prototype of what can happen when a human being fully yielded and empowered by the Holy Spirit can do. So Jesus operated under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because that means if Jesus did it under the power of the Holy Spirit and he told the disciples to wait for that same power, that means Jesus's expectation was that we were gonna receive the same anointing that he had and we would be able to do the very same stuff that he did. That you could heal the sick, that you could cast out demons, that you could operate in discernment and wisdom and knowledge. It's Matthew or it's Mark chapter 16. These signs shall follow those who believe. And listen, we only raise our levels of expectation up to the level of our knowledge and belief. So if we don't think that God wants that for us, then we'll never strive for that or we'll never grow in that. But this is, Jesus is wanting to prepare them. And one of the priorities was, I want you to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because you're gonna need it. Amen. Because of this power, they literally transformed the world, right? And because they had this power, this promise of the Father, they, they literally transformed the world. Now, today when you hear Christians say things like, Let's transform the world. Usually you hear something like, let's elect this senator. Let's pass this law. Let's boycott this business. Let's ban this book. Let's protest this and that. And listen, you can do all that, and that's fine. I'm just saying that that's not how the apostles did it. They didn't do it that way. They did it by the preaching of Jesus. They, they preached Jesus is Lord. They did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the question I've been wrestling with a lot, and I haven't quite settled in on what to do with it fully, but here's the question. Is the church called to transform the world, or is the church more, or at least we could say first, we, I know we could say first, is the church to become a transformed world or transform society themselves and then invite the watching world into the way of Jesus. Because sometimes we, I think what happens is we think we're supposed to transform the world. Let's go transform the world. But we forget that we have to first be transformed ourselves before we could ever do that. What does that mean? That means that Jesus has to have a hold of our heart. That means the spirit of God has to be displaying his fruit in us and his power in us. So then we go out and we preach Jesus. I mean, how do you see the disciples doing it? They, they, they went out in the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so if you want, so they transformed the world by first becoming transformed themselves. Which is, by the way, how anything transforms. 
If you want to transform your marriage, guess what? Transform yourself and your marriage is transformed. You want to transform a friendship, transform yourself, the tr friendship has been transformed. You want to transform a church, transform yourself, and the church is in the process of being transformed, correct? If we want to transform the city around us, the world around us, guess what? It starts right here, right? It starts right here. That if we don't have the love of God, if we can't even love each other, how can we love the world? And so what we do is when, when we have our Discover the Journey class, which we'll have during the 1115 service today, we invite people into this idea of, of what the apostles experienced in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And in this, we identify five things that was happening. And of course, there's much more and you could boil it down to one thing or 10 things. But these are the things that we can see that, that, that marked them as a transformed society. The first thing is this. We invite people to the power of place. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. When, this, when they were influenced by the Spirit, it rearranged their calendar. And I don't mean that in its most trivial form, like, oh, I need to get out and plan for 2023 and you know, move some things around. I'm just saying that when they were influenced by the Holy Spirit, everything was different. Everything was changed. Can, is anybody here want to see revival in the land, want to see revival in your family, revival? Okay, can I just suggest that, that if, let me just say, when that happens, your calendar will look totally different than it does right now. And if you don't think it will, you haven't thought deeply about this. I want you just to practically think about this. If revival really happens, you will not be doing the same things you're currently doing. What does that mean? I just want to suggest that if we are believing for revival and we know that we won't be doing the same things that we are currently doing when it happens. If we are people of faith, might it be something of faith, a step of faith for us to start making our calendar look now what it will look like then by faith? If we want God to do something, I think we're going to have to create an open space. I mean, if we don't have time to go and, and to you know, go deeper in the things of the Holy Spirit, then maybe we really don't want it. You know, and I'm not saying that to you guys because you guys do. I'm just saying that this applies to every area of our life. If we're saying we want our marriage to change, but we have no space in our life to put any time or work or space to pray about that, maybe we really don't. Maybe we're just hoping that God will just zap us with whatever we want to change and then we can just go along our merry way and we don't have to do anything else. That's not how it works. They... They, I mean, when they got a hold of this, it rearranged where they spent their time, how they spent their time, what they did with their life, what they did with their thoughts, right? So if we say we want this, might it be true for us as well? And if we are faith people, maybe we might get ahead of our flesh and start creating space for God to do something. Second thing is this, the power of identity. Acts 2, 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. They, were, they had a fixed mind to renew their minds. And as a result, their defaults got reset. Because you know all of us have defaults, right? We have defaults by the way we were raised. We have defaults from our old sin nature. We have defaults from our family of origin. We have defaults from our coping mechanism. We have defaults from all these things that we do without even realizing that we do. And when the Spirit of God came into their life, it rearranged how they did everything and their defaults started to get reset. That's what can happen when you start to experience the Spirit of God at work in your life. The, the third thing is this, the power of generosity. Acts chapter two, verse 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together, they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What were they saying here? They were saying, that, why, why is this not just about generosity? This is not about, oh, I want to be a generous person and, and give to charities. That's not what this is. What this represents is a breaking free of idolatry in their heart. There's a reason why Jesus talks about money more than almost anything else. It's because money is the easiest thing to become an idol in our heart. This is representing, in their life, idolatry had broken off. They redefined what it meant to be rich. And the Bible talks about what it means to be rich. It means being rich towards God. And they demonstrated this by opening up their hand to everyone else and saying that, God, whatever you want to do with what's in my life, I say yes to. Because it was no longer an idol in their heart. Number four, the power of purpose. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Notice the word through. They became conduits through which heaven's agenda could be released on the planet. They became, they became a vessel, as we would say, a conduit through which the power of God could come, and they released the agenda, agenda of heaven to meet the needs of people around them. Number five, the power of family. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Listen to this language. Day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Those things represent, I mean, sharing a meal around a table is a very spiritual act, by the way. There's something about that. It's over and over and over again in scriptures where they share a meal together because it represents family. And so they relocated their family connection. It's not to say that they abandoned their natural family. It's not saying that at all, although some of them did. They had to. It's simply to say that they understood that what God is doing in the kingdom of God is so powerful that you are connected so powerfully in the spirit to one another that the Bible calls it brothers and sisters. It's like so connecting what God does in the spirit when you come to Christ, that God wants to be a father with a family, that it's so powerful that you start to identify with other believers so much that it feels like a pure family, right? It feels not just like a natural family, but it feels like a holy family, and in fact it is. And, they, and it rearranged everything. And so they transformed the world by becoming a transformed society. It rearranged their calendar. It rearranged their defaults. It, it reset all sorts of things in their heart. It, it, it opened up their hand. They looked totally different, right? And because of that, they became a beacon of the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So others were like, 
I don't know what's going on there. I'm not sure I want to be a part of it just yet, but something is happening, right? What, what I'm saying is they became, they transformed the world, but it was through the preaching of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and becoming a transformed person that then as they moved out from there, it wasn't just so they could have a holy huddle and just have, you know, we talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit and just so we could have fun in church. It was so they could go on mission. It was so from there they could go and tell others about Jesus and tell others about the way. And what I'm saying is it was, it was a grassroots transformation. They transformed the world grassroots up, not top down. See, so many times we've got it all backwards. We think if we could just change the top, then everything else would come. No, any transformation, any revival you ever see or read about, it always happens here first. This happened, I love studying revivals, and one of my favorite stories is a story that happened in Wales in 1906. There was a young man by the name of Evan Roberts, and Evan went to this church meeting, and he listened to this pastor preach, and the pastor preached, and he said, and in his message, he said, oh God, bend us. What that meant was bend our way to your way, bend our will to your will, bend our thoughts to your thoughts. And he preached, oh God, bend us. And young Evan Roberts went up to the altar that night and he, he made it personal. He said, oh God, bend me, bend me. And he asked if he could preach sometime. And he was really, I mean, God was stirring his heart and the pastor said, yes, you can preach next Wednesday night after church is over. And so Evan took that opportunity and some people stayed and he preached after church. And after a couple weeks, stuff was happening. Pretty soon reporters were starting to come because the spirit of God was stirring this movement that started to happen over the next five months, 100,000 people came to Christ. Because somebody got to the altar and said, oh God, bend me. You know what happened? Society was transformed. The judges had no cases to try because there were no robberies, because there were no burglaries, there were no murders, there were no rapes, because people's hearts got transformed. They didn't pass a law to get it done. How many of you guys know that doesn't seem to work, right? And I'm thankful that we do you know, want to pass good laws. That's, that's great. But that's not why it happened. It happened because hearts were transformed. Drunkenness dropped by 50%. The, the, the people were, tra were changed. There was, a, there was a mining community. The mines were slowed down. They, they, they stopped the work in the mines. It's not because the miners quit or because they protested or because they went on strike. It's because they changed and they cleaned up their language from filthy language to more pure godly language. You say, well, why would that stop it? It's because the mules and the horses only responded to their filthy language. And so whenever they cleaned up their language, the horses and the mules had to be retrained. They transformed society. Grassroots up, heart up, heart out. That's how they did it. And... So they were called out. They, 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 what, what God has done before, he will do it again, amen? amen. If we, we can do it our own way or we can do it the God 
way. And, and like I said, this transformation was not just so they could have a holy huddle and have fun and, you know, talk about spiritual things and, and use spiritual gifts in church. And like, that's not what it was about. It was about God empowering them so they could go out and be a gift to the world. How can we transform the world if we don't love the world, if we don't like the world, if it's an us versus them? That's not the way the apostles did it. And I just am suggesting it might not be the way we do it as well. And it's not just so we can be in here and say, oh, look, let's look, we're called out. It's so that we can be on mission for God. All right, one more clip from Pastor Lee. He addressed this very thing. Let's watch. He prioritized them mobilizing the church to reach the ends of the earth. In verse eight, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So that's the first part. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. What was the power for? The power was to be mobilized to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus commissioned the church to do. I want you to go and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, verse 18. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. But before you go, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. But once you get the Holy Spirit, the point is to mobilize you and to get you moving. Because Jesus did not create the church to be a stagnant, institutionalized monument to himself, but a Holy Spirit-empowered catalytic movement that would reach the farthest corners and the unreached people of the earth until he returned. See, the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's not for us, it's for the world. Now, I can pick on my church family, not you, but I grew up Pentecostal, Pentecostal charismatic. And we love the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a charismatic church. And, you know, I grew up in... We talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues, gift of prophecy, healing, you know, all those kinds of things. But very often, one of the criticisms I have of the Pentecostal charismatic movement as a whole is that we oftentimes looked at the power of the Holy Spirit as for us, for us to enjoy and us to be entertained by. Go to a conference and, you know, it's like people are falling down when they're getting prayed for. And man, I really felt the Lord. I got the goosebumps and it was amazing. And I got a word for myself and it was amazing. And, and listen, we get to enjoy that. But that's not the point. If we're not careful, we can turn the charismatic gifts into a charismatic carnival. How many have seen those carnivals that come to town? They set up in the mall parking lot, you know. You got little carny guys running around there. They got machines you would never put anybody you love on, but because you've had two elephant ears and one of those long hot dogs wrapped in corn or whatever they are, you know, you get on that thing and you know, you're trying to hit the top of it. And you're throwing, trying to get the stuffed animal for your first date. And these machines are held together by duct tape and spit. And you have no idea whether you're going to survive the twirly whirl or the, you know, whatever those things are. And those carnivals come to town, they set up, everybody has a good time, they go home and throw up, they swear they're never gonna go back, and the next time, you know, the next week you drive by that, it's gone. There's nothing lasting there. Listen, the church is not meant to be self-centered. It is meant to be a compass that's pointed outward. 
filled with the Holy Spirit to the north, to the south, the east, and the west. And as we go, the Bible says in Mark chapter 16, it says, God will confirm the preaching of the message with signs and wonders following. I'm about to say something that's going to rock your world, and then I'm going to miss the last two points because I don't have time. But one of the reasons why we don't see more signs and wonders in the American culture is because there is a direct correlation to our lack of going. We've taken Jesus from being our personal Lord and Savior to now Jesus becoming our private Lord and Savior. And we keep them to ourselves. And God says, I will confirm the message with signs and wonders. But I'm not just going to give you signs and wonders so that you can stand there and wonder. If we, if we start preaching the gospel more in our culture, one-on-one and boldly proclaiming it and being unashamed about the name of Jesus and being motivated by what motivated Jesus and being a mobilized mission movement, I'll tell you what's going to happen. God's going to pour his spirit out and you're going to see things you've never seen before. You can go to third world nations where they don't have lights, they don't have buildings, they got lawn chairs and tarps and they are persecuted, but they are preaching the gospel. And you know what God's doing? Miracle upon miracle upon miracle a miracle. It's because God's not interested in entertaining us. He's interested in empowering us for mission. So good, right? And when they had the power, they were able to go out and to share that, right? So this group of apostles and disciples were essentially a remnant or a called out group of people in a sense. They were called out from culture, for sure. They were a culture mi- cultural minority. How many of you guys know that us as believers, we're becoming more and more of that, a cultural minority, you could say. But we have to be careful because in their called outness, they didn't Turn it into, you know, how many of you guys know there's a lot of what the world calls, what we call tribalism today, where it's like, here's my tribe, and if you're not part of my tribe, then you're evil, right? Whatever that is. You can just put that in whatever, or whatever sphere you want to do. Here's my tribe. If you're not in it, you're evil. It's us versus them. This is not what, see, in their called outness, in, even though they were a cultural minority, they didn't turn their cultural minorityness or their remnantness into a different form of worldly tribalism. Where it's now like, oh, well, we're a tribe too. And so now it's us versus you. And yet, if I look around at the American landscape of Christianity, that is so much of what's happening right now. And it is not the heart of God. It is not the heart of God. I don't know what else. To, I, I will boldly stand up and just say, pushing back against all of the headwaters of, of, of society, culture, and Christianity that's pushing that and say, no, that does not happen here. We're not called out to become just another version of worldly tribalism. That's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of what happened in Scripture. They Instead, they became... They were a cultural minority, but they used that to, as Paul said, I will, be spent, I will spend and be spent for your souls. In fact, Paul even says in one place in Scripture, he says that, essentially he says this, that if it were in my power, if I could give up my place in heaven so that they could be there, I would do it. 
Do you have that kind of heart for people? Or is it so much an us versus them? See, the power of the Holy Spirit is there to flow through you to be a gift to the world. To be a gift to the world. As the worship team comes back up, we're getting ready to wrap up, but how do you do this? How do you transform the world? It happens in here. We, we transform the world by dying to self and living to Jesus. You want to transform the world? You die to self. You die to your way. You die to your preferences. You die to the things that you would like to preserve. And you say, I am going to go 100% to give my life to Jesus. You know, that, that scripture, there's a scripture that's one of my favorite scriptures, so much so that my wife made it, made it on my keychain. It says Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And this is one of my, my favorite scriptures. And we can put it up on the screen, but I don't, I don't need it because it's in my heart. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That scripture right there, I want you to think about the magnitude of that scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? That means, it says, it is no longer I that live. Do we believe that scripture? Because that is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel today, it seems so weak. It's like, you know, if you want to live for Jesus, just start coming to church more. Just, you know, change your life a little bit, make, you know, make it a little more, post something on Instagram that you know, sounds godly. This scripture says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It, it's like, if, if I were to give you the, the keys to my life and gave you the keys to my house, the keys to my car, the keys to my heart, the keys to my thoughts, and said, here, now it's all yours. And by the way, when I give this to you, you have to give yours away and now take my place. That's, that's as, as radical as it is. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our place. But he didn't take our place just so that we could add Jesus to our life. See, the gospel isn't my life plus Jesus added to it. The gospel isn't Jesus plus my good works. The gospel message is Jesus equals life, period. And so when we talk about being crucified with Christ, it's literally, it literally means I get, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and I, I said yes to Jesus, I gave Jesus the keys to my life, every part of it. And I don't take it back. And you know what Jesus did in response? He gave me the keys to the kingdom. But here in the meantime, you know what I'm doing? I'm not living from my life anymore. When I went into the baptismal waters, what does that say? I went under, under the water. My old life is gone, right? My old life is gone. When I come up out of the water, my new life, I am a new creation. You see, the message of the gospel, we, we've weakened it so much. Here's what it is. If you wanna to come to Jesus, you give up your old life and you start a new one where Jesus, well, whatever Jesus would do, that's what you do now. Whatever Jesus would think, that's what you get to think now. 
Whatever emotions Jesus would have in a situation, that's the emotions you get to have. See, I gave up my rights to my life when I said yes to Jesus. It's all in. So of course, when I follow Jesus, my calendar's gonna be rearranged. Of course, when I follow Jesus, my hand's gonna be open. Of course, when I follow Jesus, my heart is gonna be oriented towards people because now I have the thoughts of God, the heart of God, the ways of God, the whatever rights I thought I had, I surrendered and now I have the keys to the kingdom and I live the kingdom way. Are you, are you guys getting this this morning? I'm preaching as best I can, as best I know how. This is the message of Jesus. It's all in. It's not I get to keep part of my life. It's like I went all in with Jesus. And now I get, I rearranged who I get my orders from. And if this isn't your life right now, I've got an invitation for you. Come to Jesus. But beware, when you come to Jesus, here's what you're doing with your life. You're turning in your keys. You're turning in your keys and you say, Jesus equals my life. And from here on out, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live. It's Christ that lives in me. The life that I now live, even though I'm still in the flesh, I live by faith. We're not perfect. I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. So we're going to come to the, to the table, receive communion. There's tables and back tables in front. During this next song, we're going to just have a moment there at our seat as you grab the elements, and you're going to have a moment, and we're going to remember the blood that was spilled on the cross. We remember that. It's represented by the juice that, that is in these elements and the body that was broken by the cracker that's in these elements. And I hope for some of us, this is a moment where we can come back and this is a turn in the keys moments, moment again. Because maybe I've been trying to transform my life, transform my marriage, transform my world or whatever it is through the intoxication ways of the world, through the worldly ways of power and, and coercion and all these other things. Maybe it's time to remind ourselves that I've been crucified. So would you stand up with me? Lord, we just, we come to you right now and we say that our life is yours. We turn in our keys. May your power flow through us. May the gospel message be on our lips. It first be in our hearts. May it first be in our life. We do have a desire to transform things around us, but would you transform us? Would you bend us, bend me? As we come to the table, we're reminded of your sacrifice for us, that you paid the price for our sins, that you rose from the dead, that you give us eternal life. Lord, we choose to step into that life right now so that our thoughts are your thoughts. Your, your, your ways are our ways. There's no difference between the two. That we think like you do. We love like you do. We act like you do. We walk like you do. Lord, that's our heart's desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come to the table, grab the elements, have a moment back at our seats.